Okay, after this sermon, the obvious thing to say is that we're going to be taking a break uh, from uh, Mark's Gospel for a few weeks. I'm going to be away for a while, and uh, even when I return, there's no guarantee that we're going to be jumping straight back into uh, Mark's Gospel. We're going to be taking a break from this sermon series, and uh, so when that process, maybe you think, hang on, this seems like a bit of an odd place to pause. Are you kind of thinking that? Like Jesus before before the, the Sanhedrin, Jesus before the, the high priest, that seems like a little bit of an odd place uh, to break. It seems almost like the calm before the storm. It seems almost like the sort of start before the main meal of Jesus' death and resurrection. You're thinking it's a bit of an odd place, a bit of a strange place to take a break in the sermon series. Well, I want you to see that it's not like that at all, actually. I think what we've got to understand is there's been all of this momentum building up and building up throughout Mark's gospel. Building up, building up, and it builds up to here. To this little section that we've got in front of us just now. That this is actually, believe it or not, this is an apex. This is a kind of a pinnacle in Mark's gospel. This is the theological, Christological climax of the whole book. So what is it? It's a great place for us uh, just now to pause and take a break. What do we see? Because it's got nothing to do with me whatsoever, let me assure you. What do we see? We see that God's timing, as always, is perfect. It's a solemn portion of Scripture, isn't it? difficult portion of scripture. But I do think there are a number of things we we have to to focus on this morning. The first of them is the sham of the trial. That's the first thing that I want us to consider, the sham of the trial. Now, if you were, as a number of you were, if you were here last week, you remember, don't you, what's going on? You remember where we were. We were in, yes, Gethsemane, and we had seen Jesus arrested and we left things as Jesus was being, you remember it? He was being led out of the garden by the crowd. Now, as we come into this section here, we see where it was. Or actually, do you know what? We see to whom it is uh, that the crowd are leading Jesus. Do you see who it is? Verse 53, the crowd lead him to the high priest himself. And you've got the scene where you've got Peter outside in the courtroom and do you see who joins the high priest inside with Jesus look at it it's not just the high priest it's the chief priest the elders and the scribes and what do we know about them it's the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin that's right now I am curious I'm curious to know how in the past you've understood this portion of scripture and how you've read it in the past like Jesus before the Sanhedrin here like, have you, have you thought about this and understood it to be a sort of formal courtroom type scene? You know, like a really organized, sanctioned meeting of the Sanhedrin. Is that how you've understood it in the past? Because that is not what's going on here. See, understand that for the Sanhedrin to be legally binding, they weren't allowed to meet at night. They weren't allowed to meet on the eve of the Passover. They weren't allowed to meet just once in a capital case. <laughs> they weren't allowed to meet in the high priest residence. Like, do, do you see the point that I'm making here? This is not a sort of formal meeting on the Sanhedrin. This is, this is something different. Like, this is like an, an informal and it's a hastily, quickly arranged kind of 
get together. In fact, you've got to understand this. See the meeting that we're dealing with here. Understand, please, that this was not to determine the guilt or otherwise of Jesus. That's not what it's about. They're not gathering together to decide whether he's guilty or not. Do you see what's going on here? They're determining, deciding what charge to level against Jesus in order to secure his death. Because I would ask you all to do this, even the boys and girls, would you look at your Bibles and look at verse 1 of this chapter. We've got to go back a wee bit. You might even have to turn a page. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 14. What do we know? What's the background here? Listen to it. It was now two days before the Passover feast, uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests described, so these guys, they were seeking how to arrest him by stuff and do what? Kill him. Kill him. Do you see what that means? The Sanhedrin have already decided Jesus' fate. They've already decided what they're going to do. They've already decided before this meeting that they are going to seek to put Jesus to death. But they've got a problem to see what the problem is. They don't have the authority to do this. They need the Romans on side. So what are they going to do? What do they do? They do this. They gather everyone together in order, in order to, to ensure everyone is on the same page before they go to Pilate the next day. To ensure that everyone's together. What do they do? They arrange this hasty, hasty, speedy meeting to decide the charge that will secure the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? Do you read this? Isn't it? Isn't it? It's almost scary. It's the evil, the wickedness of men. Now, what do we know? We know that, that people lie in court. Don't we? No matter what, what what a government will do to try and put obstacles in people's way, when some people go up into a witness box, they will still tell fibs. They will still uh, lie through their teeth a lot of the time. Now, even with that knowledge at the back of our minds, I doubt that there's ever been a scene like the one that we're dealing with here in the high priest's residence. Because you, do you understand what happens here? It's not that one man gets up to tell a lie about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is here a succession of individuals, like one after the other. This long, long line of people, and they all get up, and what do they do? They, they lie, and they misrepresent. And they bear false testimony in Jesus, one after the other, one after the other. In fact, do you, do you see, we're given an example of this. It's quite a confusing example, but you see it in verse 58. So somebody gets up in front of the 70-odd members of the Sanhedrin, and he accuses Jesus of what? Of destroying the temple. And it's confusing, maybe, because you think, well, hang on. Didn't Jesus say he was going to do that? Destroy the temple? But look at the wording of it. The accusation is that Jesus has said he is going to destroy this temple made by hands, as though he was referring to the actual sanctuary. And what do we know? The temple Jesus was referring to was his his own body. You see, it is a lie. And then all of this is lies. Do you see your Lord there? Just, just There's lies, there's accusation, misrepresentation being hurled and thrown at Jesus. But you're in here this morning and you're wondering, well, what is this to do with me? 
Well, I think Mark chapter 14 has everything to do with us. I think Mark chapter 14 actually should serve as a wake-up call to the church, the church in the UK, the church in the West. See, the Lord Jesus Christ has promised us that because the world hated him, that the world will hate us as well. And haven't we forgotten that? Isn't that the case that we've had such a comfortable existence as Christians in the West? Such a really privileged position that it seems like in the last generation or so we've forgotten that opposition that should come our way. Now here's the thing though. What do you see when you look at the church in other lands? What do you see when you look at the websites, the prayer letters of the persecuted church? What do you see? i tell you what you see. You see Mark 14. You see your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You see saints in other parts of the world. And what's happening to them today? They're lied about. They're misrepresented. In fact, you've got some parts of the world, you've got whole communities who are conspiring to tell lies about the church and individual believers. This happening today. So here's what I want to know. How are we going to respond? Like, what are, what are we going to do when this sort of stuff as seems likely comes to the United Kingdom? What are we going to do? I think there's a couple of places that you and I can go for comfort. One, we can go to Matthew chapter 5. Now listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and bear false witness against you in my name. Actually, that's a time where God blesses his church. Where else can we go for comfort? Friends, if we, if we are misrepresented in the name of Jesus Christ, can we not go here? Can we not go to Mark chapter 14? Because what do you see in front of you when you are lied about in the name of Jesus Christ? What do you see? Our Savior understands. Like Mark 14. He has gone through worse himself. So we see this was a sham, a sham of a trial. Second thing that we've got to note here though is the silence of the lamb. The silence of the lamb. Now one of the greatest uh, moments in cinematic history, one of the greatest moments in film of all time, uh, it took place in the 1995 film Heat. Okay, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this film Heat. And the main plot of the film saw two groups. You had a group of bank robbers go up a group against a group of detectives. And in the infamous scene, what happened was that the two heads of the, these two groups, they got together, the two sort of figurehead, the leaders got together in a coffee shop. And you had two actors who were at the time at the top of the game. You had Robert De Niro and you had Al Pacino. And he had them facing off against one, one another, staring at each other, going toe-to-toe, uh, head-to-head. A lot of drama. Now, if you know that, you know the tension, you know the suspense, you know the drama. And it's got absolutely nothing on what we're dealing with here. You, ever since chapter 3 of this book, what's been happening... Like we're on chapter 14. Ever since the beginning of this book, what's been happening? The religious establishment, they have been seeking the downfall of Jesus Christ, haven't they? 
And, and what you've got to understand, see all of that momentum that's been building up from the religious elite opposing Jesus, hating Jesus, all that momentum, it all reaches the climax in the verses you've got in front of you. Because what's here? The two figureheads, they go toe-to-toe. Isn't that what happens in this Sanhedrin meeting? It's not the disciples. It's not the religious establishment. You have, you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And you now have the high priest himself. And they're going toe-to-toe. And they're going head-to-head. Now, you see what the high priest does, do you? The high priest at this point tries to really provoke Jesus and tries to entice Jesus to speak. And I reckon if you're on the ball and you're thinking it through, you can see why. The Sanhedrin are so frustrated at this point. All of these accusations have come absolutely nothing. And all of these men are pulling their hair out thinking, how are we going to charge this man? What are we going to do? So the high priest, what does he do? He takes it upon himself He steps down, he provokes Jesus, tries to provoke him. But what I want you to see is how your Lord responds. So would you look at verse 61 with me? Now think of the scene. Accusation after accusation. Lie after lie. And how does the Son of God respond? He says... Nothing. He says not one solitary word. Now, this week I've, I've read so much on this, the silence of the Lamb. The silence of Jesus. And you know, it's, it's, I find it really surprising the take that some people have on silence. Some people say this is a strategy by Jesus at the Sanhedrin. They say that he doesn't answer these accusations almost out of fear. He doesn't answer these things because he knows that whatever he says, it will be jumped upon and twisted and a trumped up charge will appear and Jesus is scared that that might happen so he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything. That's what, that's what people, that's what people say. What do you think? The silence? I don't think that's right. Because do you remember what has just happened? You think of Gethsemane. Judas has entered that garden and he has kissed Jesus to identify him. And what has Jesus done? He knows that is part of the Father's plan. So what did Jesus do? He allowed it to happen. And you have this wicked crowd and they come with, they come with bats and they come with swords and they put their hands on the Son of Man himself. And what does Jesus do? Does he destroy them all? He knows it is part of his Father's plan. So he allows it to happen. Do you see what is happening inside the Sanhedrin here? Friends, Jesus hears these false accusations. He sees this wicked momentum reach its peak. What does he do? He does nothing. Why? Is there a strategy? Why is it? It's submission. Our Lord knows that even this wicked crowd's baying for blood, even 
this opposition is all within the, the plan, the framework of God Almighty. He knows that if he is to fulfill his earthly mission, he must stand back and allow this to happen. So what does Jesus do? He says nothing. He allows it to happen. He says not one solitary word. And I think if you're a Christian... And here just now, I think that should move you tremendously this morning. Can you imagine how difficult it was allowing every opportunity to defend yourself? Every opportunity arises one after the other and to say nothing, to answer none of this. Can you imagine how traumatic that was? Like uh, she before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And do you see why? For you and for me, and understand this, that Jesus bit his tongue to save your soul. Isn't that what happened here? This is, this isn't, uh, this isn't empty. This is for you. This was for your salvation, wasn't it? That this, in the high priest's residence, wasn't just a deafening silence. It was a saving silence. Jesus bit his tongue. He said not one solitary word. And he did it for his people's salvation. Thirdly, we see the supremacy of the judge. We see the supremacy of the judge. As I've gone around the congregation over the last uh, six weeks or so, a couple of months, there's been this kind of familiar recurring theme happening uh, throughout the congregation. Always happens at this time of year. People are waiting for a moment to arrive. A lot of people this time of year, they put a date in the diary of a holiday and they're working hard and they're desperately waiting for that, that moment to finally arrive. Well, it's kind of like that when we're in Mark chapter 14 here. Because in Mark chapter 14, a long, 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 long awaited moment finally, finally arrives. See, the high priest is frustrated. Jesus has been silent. So the high priest asks Jesus a second question. Do you see it in verse 61? It's very pointed. Look at the question. The second question. He asks him now, attention after that silence. And he says to Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Now, do you understand? Have you been here for the sermon series? Do you understand what we're supposed to be thinking at this point? We're supposed to be thinking, how does he know to ask that question? You see it? Like, how does, how does the high priest, how does the Sanhedrin know that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ? Like, if you've been here for the sermon series, you know that ever since the start of Mark's gospel, there has been what theologians call the messianic secret. Right? The fact that Jesus has kept stoom about his identity. He's told one or two people, but that's... For example, think of Peter's great confession of Christ. Confesses Jesus to be the Christ. How does Jesus respond? He says, yeah. Shh. Don't tell anyone. How many times have we heard that in Mark's gospel? Shh, don't. Don't tell people. Give it. There's been this messianic secret. So we're asking, 
I go on, how did the, how did the Sanhedrin know? How does the high priest know? Do you see what's happening here? These very men, with their eyes, have seen Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey. They've witnessed this implied claim of divinity, the Old Testament animal of monarchy. These same men here, they've heard with their ears the parable of the tenants. Do you remember what Jesus said? They killed the servants and they will kill the son. These men, they recognize that Jesus is making implied claims about himself. Now, they want to hear from him. They want to hear it from him. So what does Jesus say? Does he remain silent this time? Do you see what he says? Look at this. He says, no, now is the time. Now is the moment. The secret must be revealed. What does he say? He says, I am. He says, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. Friends, the secret is out. The secret is exposed. Christ is the Messiah of God. Now, if anything, please, friends, know how Jesus elaborates on this truth. If you look with me to verse 62, look what he does. Look what he says. He promises the Sanhedrin that they will one day see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. If you know your Bible well, you know what that is. That is Daniel chapter 7, which we have just read. And that is Psalm 110, which we've just sung. And that is our Lord bringing those together to make a very unsubtle point. Do you see what the point is? He looks to these men, these evil, wicked men. And he's saying, you think you're judging me? You think you're judging me? One day the shoe is going to be on the other foot. One day I will return in the clouds. I will return in judgment. And one day I will judge all of the earth. And I think, Christian friends, that there is the remedy that we need today. Is it not the medicine that we need? How have you come to church this morning? If you come struggling as a Christian, if you come in doubt, if you come dry spiritually, is that is that you this morning? Do you not see what God's doing there? Do you not see what God is reminding you of? On our side is the Son of God. We are united by faith to the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord of all. And what do we know? We know in Him for all the saints of God. There is a happy ending. One day the Christ shall return in the clouds. One day he does return in power. And what shall happen on that day? Every single knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the remedy that we need as believers. And then we'll close with the fourth thing. The savagery of the response uh, because we have to deal with this don't we the end of this portion of scripture which is one of the most horrifying uh, scenes of all time 
one of the writers, the commentators in this portion of Scripture, and he's an expert in these things. And he has to keep coming back to, to Mark chapter 14. Do you know what he says? He, he, he's writing in this and he says, I have to keep turning away. He's so moved, is he, by the end of this portion of Scripture that he had to keep turning away, to keep breaking from this word. And do you see why? Do you see what happens? The Sanhedrin now have what they want. And they are united behind a common charge. And consider what it is. They're going to charge God with blasphemy. They have their charge. So what do they do? They now turn on our Lord. Did you notice the details? They spit at him. And they hit our Savior. And ironically, they call for him to prophesy. When what do we know? We know in the previous chapter, he's predicted these very details. He's predicted the spitting and the hitting. Not just utterly appalling. As a Christian sitting in here, are you not moved to see your Savior and your Lord treated like this? But I end just by repeating the question that the high priest asked that Sanhedrin. Jesus claimed to be God. The Sanhedrin Luke, the high priest looks to the Sanhedrin and he asked them this. What is your decision? Friends, as we break this morning, I just want to reiterate and bring that question to your door. What is your conclusion? What is your decision? If you've been here for the last number of months, God has shown you much about the Lord Jesus Christ and Mark's Gospel. You've seen and read and been confronted with a portion of scripture where Jesus of Nazareth claims to be the Messiah. What is it that you're going to decide? Are you someone in here who has ever professed faith publicly? What is it you think of this? What is it you believe about these matters? Do you believe that Jesus is being truthful? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is the Messiah? Do you believe that he is the one who has laid down his life for sin? Do you believe that? Well, today surely you bow to him. Surely today you fall before the Lord and you seek forgiveness and you publicly profess your faith in the Son of God. Friends, let's break from our certain series in Mark's Gospel, let's do so with gratitude in our hearts. You can see why. Jesus was accused. Jesus was attacked. And it was all to atone for our sin. Maybe the our response is very different to the Sanhedrin. May our response be today to worship the King. Let's pray.